Open your Bibles with me to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. We have been, over the last few weeks, looking very slowly at verses 15 to 20, which is an ancient hymn, as you, I'm sure, well know by now. And what we've seen in verses 15 to 20 of Colossians chapter 1 is the glory of Christ put on display for all to see. We have seen Christ exalted. We've seen him put in a position as the supreme God who is God of God, light of light, eternal God from eternal God. He is begotten, not made. He is one with the Father. He is all of these things that the ancient creeds that we recite articulate him to be the eternal God. And then we've seen that he was made man that he took on human form in order to come into the world and redeem mankind. And Paul continues to exalt him as the Lord of all, who is worthy of the worship of the church. He is the head of the church, which is his body. He is preeminent over all. And he comes to reconcile the world to himself. And so we've looked at Jesus in this grand picture. And now today, after having looked at all that, we get to verses 21 to 23. We've seen Christ, and today we see our hope in him, our hope in this Christ that has been so clearly articulated to us over the last several weeks. So we're going to read this morning from verse 15 all the way down to 23, just so we have the full context. And then for the purpose of our Our uh, sermon, we're going to be looking at just verse 21 to 23. So let me read this aloud together and then we'll pray and jump in. Beginning in verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of, of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Let's pray. Father, we come now to your holy, precious word and ask you again this week to teach us. Lord, we are weak people. We're we're weaker than we even know, and we think we know our weakness, many of us. And Father, we're so weak that we would be distracted by a hundred things this morning. Lord, I pray that by your spirit, you would eliminate distraction and cause your people to hear your truth proclaimed. Father, I pray for those who may be far away from you, even this very moment, who may be alienated from you, even this very moment. Lord, I pray that by the time that we're done with this sermon, they would no longer be alienated, but they would be reconciled. Do this miracle by the power of your spirit and do it in all of us to a certain extent, Lord. Even those who are reconciled already, I pray that we would glory in the work that you've done in us afresh this morning, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Edward Mote 
is a dear brother in Christ of ours who grew up in the town of West Sussex, England, during the mid-1800s. He came from an unbelieving family, and he was saved when he was a teenager around the age of 18 when he heard the preaching of the gospel. He went on for most of his life to be a successful cabinet maker, but when he got into his mid-50s, he sensed a call to full-time ministry. So he transitioned into pastoral ministry later on in his life. And from that period onward, he pastored a little church there in West Sussex named Rehoboth Baptist Church, which was made up of a group of saints that came to love him dearly. In fact, they loved him so dearly that this poor group of saints wanted to do something to bless their pastor financially. So they came to him at one point in time and they said, Pastor, the church wants to give our church building to you as a gift. I don't know what in the world a pastor would do with a church building as a gift, but he didn't have anything that he felt like he needed to do with it anyway. I don't think I would either. But he lovingly told his congregation this. He said, I do not want the chapel. I only want the pulpit. And when I cease to preach Christ, then turn me out of that. Moat's my kind of guy. Moat was a guy who faithfully preached Christ until his dying breath because he knew that what his church needed more than anything else was to know Jesus. Moat was also a songwriter, a quite prolific songwriter. In fact, he penned over 100 hymns that were eventually collected into a book. And one of those hymns is one of the Scoggin family favorites. It's a hymn that we sung to our girls every night when they were younger. It's a hymn that we are actually singing even this month once again as we pick one hymn each month to focus on and sing every evening that we are home together. And the hymn begins in the first verse like this. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ, the solid rock, I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. Is that true for you this morning? Is your hope built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness? Is your life built on the solid rock of Christ alone? Are you here this morning sinking in the sand of a hopeless existence? What is your hope built on? I hope is one of those common expressions that we use in the English language. We hope for all sorts of things, don't we? We, we hope for a good day. We hope for a healthy family. We hope for success in our jobs. We hope for a chance to grab a scoop of ice cream whenever we're going past our favorite ice cream shop. We hope for a particular gift when Christmas is coming around. We hope for general happiness and for joy and for peace in life. And all of those hopes are not innately wrong so long as those hopes are kept in their proper place. You see, our, our hope begins to get misplaced when our souls are not most deeply anchored in the hope of Christ alone, but begin to be anchored in the things that I just mentioned, these worldly sort of things. When our hopes are anchored in things that are earthly, we're guaranteed eventual disappoint, disappointment and despair because we know, and if you haven't come to find this out, then I, I just got some news for you. You ought to know that all of those things that are worldly things are eventually come to, are going to come to fail you. In our world, every hope that you place yourself, that, that you place your hope in in this life is eventually come to, going to come to let you down in some way, shape, or form. So do you know how people in our day and age handle that particular reality that I'm talking about there? the failure of our hopes? Well, they choose to safeguard their mental health when these hopes let them down by turning their deepest, most fundamental hope toward what they think that they can control. It's interesting, I was reading a Harvard Business Review article 
I was talking about the hopelessness that came out of COVID when so many businesses were starting to fail. And this Harvard Business Review article defined hope in this way. Hope is the belief that the future will be better than the present, coupled with the belief that you have the power to make it so. They go on to say this. True hope is a combination of personal agency that differentiates hope from its lesser cousins like bravado and wishful thinking. When we play the lottery, we are engaged in wishful thinking. When we draw up a business plan to take it to the bank for a loan, we are in the domain of hope. Now, church, are you discerning enough to see the subtle secular worldview, the view of the world that our world often articulates that's at work here? They're saying, ground your ultimate hope in the things that you know you can control for yourself. Also known as, aka, don't trust in anyone but yourself. That's what this is saying, is it not? I mean, no wonder it's so difficult in our society to tell people things like, your only hope for salvation is in Christ. He alone can save you. Place your hope in him. What I hope you see is that the world, operating under the lies of Satan, has set an agenda on self-determination. It's an agenda that rejects the possibility that there could be a God who created all things and who thus all creation is held accountable to. And this is nothing new, really, and the reason is laid out in our passage that we're going to be looking at this morning. But our passage this morning does more than explain why the world seeks to live in self-dependence. It also conveys to us the true reality by, by which all created men and women ought to live. And it shows us that that reality is one that offers to people everlasting hope. It offers a hope to a broken creation that so desperately needs it. So, so if you've ever found your hopes and dreams crushed in this world, then I want you to know this morning that there's a sort of hope that will never be crushed because it's not a hope that is of this world. It's a hope that broke into this world from outside of this world, and now it is a hope that can dwell within all who believe that this is the truth. And I pray that that'll be true of you this morning. We're going to see three reality checks in our text this morning. What the Bible does for us, church, is it gives us a vision of reality. It tells us what is really real. It tells us what you ought to believe is true. And so here are three reality checks this morning. Reality check one, hope needed. Reality check two, hope arrived. And reality check three, hope lived. That's what we're going to see from our text this morning. So let's start by looking at reality check one, hope needed. Look with me at Colossians 1 verse 21. The Holy Spirit says, And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. Now, I'm going to let you in this morning on what Paul's about to do for us. He's going to use one of his typical gospel, gospel formulas to seek to encourage the Christians in the church here. He reminds them first of who they once were, and then he reminds them of who they now are in Christ. So in the first line, Paul identifies the state of all men, women, and children apart from Christ. Now, I need to remind everyone here of the bigger picture that's going on. If you've been with us over the last several weeks, you have seen the glory of Jesus Christ on display in the text leading up to this point. We've seen he's the one and only eternal God. He is the son of God. He's on full display in Paul's preaching here in Colossians. And we saw that this God, this eternal son of God, came down from heaven, was made man, so that he could accomplish a sort of cosmic reconciliation toward a broken creation. Now last week, we saw Paul teach that everything that sin has undone in creation Everything that sin has broken, Jesus Christ has begun to reverse by making peace by the blood of his cross. Up to this point, 
You could say that Paul has had kind of a wide-angle view of the implications of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. He, he has a wide-angle view of the effect that Jesus' work has on all creation in a general sense. But now in our text this morning, Paul zooms in on the heart of the problem. The reason that our world is in relative chaos is because of human sin. You ever wonder why this world is so broken and messed up? It's because of human sin. Remember, Adam and Eve were created to rule over God's creation as they submitted to God's eternal rule themselves. But Adam and Eve chose to rebel, and their rebellion turned all creation on its head alongside with them. So if this cosmic reconciliation of all things in creation is to be a reality, then we know now men and women must be reconciled first. God has to deal with the heart of the problem, and the heart of the problem is not just that animals eat animals, it's that human sin exists in the world. Mankind is the one who rebelled against the holy and righteous God. And so what we see Paul saying here is that we were all, and many even still are, alienated from God. Alienated. Uh, that's a word that is probably the strongest word that Paul could have used in the Greek to imply the break of relationship. Alienation carries the connotation of permanence. The word means estranged. It's getting after the relational status that seems totally and permanently damaged. Okay, so maybe just imagine by way of an illustration a village that has two parts that are on either side of a deep canyon with a treacherous river at the very bottom of that canyon. And that village is one village because it's connected by a natural stone bridge that crosses the canyon. So people travel back and forth across that bridge as many times as they want in a day. They live in deep, vibrant community with the people who are on the other side. But one day, an earthquake strikes the region and that stone bridge crumbles down into the abyss. And so now the people have no ability to cross that bridge, to cross that chasm. And they don't have the ability to build anything that's going to cross it because the span is too vast. So what was at one point in time a vibrant single village becomes two alienated villages. That's something of the imagery that's going on here in Paul's mind. There is a gulf between God and man. A gulf that is or at least seems to be insurmountable, insurpassable. We cannot cross that gulf because of human sin. He is the holy and the righteous creator and we are unrighteous sinners who continue in our sin willingly. So you see the problem here, church, is we as God's created people were created to thrive as we dwell in deep community with our God. But our sinful condition has alienated us from our creator God. And the result of our alienation is expressed in the text here in two ways. Paul says we were hostile in mind and we were doing evil deeds. To be hostile in mind is to be an enemy. To be hostile, friends, is to be totally set against another person. It's to hate another person. It's to be in opposition to everything that that person stands for. And then the word mind that we see here, not only hostile, but hostile in mind, that word mind doesn't just refer to the human intellect. No, that word mind refers to the disposition of the whole person. So here's what Paul is saying. Our entire mentality, our whole mindset was anti-God, hostile toward him, against him, not wanting anything that he considers to be good, to be true about us. So, so Paul is saying that all of us were certain enemies of God. We were all, before Christ came into our lives, in rebellion against him in our fallen state. And not only were we hostile in our minds, we also continually did evil deeds. He says we were doers of evil, continually, uncontrollably doing evil things. 
Turn with me to Romans chapter 1, if you've got your Bibles with you. In Romans chapter 1, Paul, I think, more fully identifies what we were like in our lost condition. And he reveals there that people tend, in their lost condition, in one of two directions. But both of these directions are equally hostile in mind and are filled with evil deeds. In Romans chapter 1, Paul shows us that some people tend toward giving into sinful pleasure with an absolute disregard of their conscience. So all people are given the law of God in the sense that they have a conscience that there's some things right and some things wrong. Some people manifest the sin that is in their heart, manifest their hostility toward God by ignoring their conscience, searing it, and just living however they want to live. Nobody can tell me what I can do and can't do. They don't want anything to do with what could be considered oppressive religion. And they tout this way of living as what it means to live in true freedom. And they not only live this way, they also seek to encourage as many people to follow them in the path. Come and sin with me. Forget about all that religious stuff. Of them, Paul writes this in Romans 1, 22 to 32. He says, claiming to be wise, of course, these people think they're wise. I know the path to freedom. Live for yourself. Claiming to be wise, Paul says, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. They're, in other words, they wanted to worship created things and not the one true God, whatever that may be. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. God, God just says, if you want sin, I'll just give you over into it. That's his wrath toward them. He will allow a conscience to be seared. He will allow somebody to feel really good in their sinful lifestyle. Because that's his wrath toward them. It says, for this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passions for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. That particular sin right there, my friends, is talking about the sin of homosexuality. They gave up natural relations for those that were contrary to nature. And God just gave them up to it. Go, go and enjoy it, live in it, but, but it, wrath is coming. Punishment is coming because I didn't make you to live that way. But it's not just homosexual sin that becomes a problem. Sin manifests itself in all sorts of ways. Look, it says, they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil. It's like they run out of things that they can do that are evil. So they say, let's just invent some more stuff. Let's come up with more evil things that we can do. And then here's one for all the children in the room, disobedient to parents. Foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. Now, I can just read that list, I think, and so long as you're paying attention, I don't even have to ask you whether or not you think that's the current state of the broader culture that we live in today. It's obvious. This is exactly what our broader culture says. It's not only okay, but is good. Go and live for these things. Go and exalt yourself. Live for what makes you feel the best. Ignore God. Ignore religious restraint and do what you want to do. That's our current state in the broader culture around us. But here, Paul would make it clear that living that way just shows how guilty we are before God. 
And the fact is that we should be ashamed that we live this way. We should sense shame that we would live for self in an abject rejection of the holy and righteous and true God. And we ought to be trying to figure out what to do with that shame. But there's another way that alienation expresses itself in the world, and that's through hypocritical religious devotion. Okay, Paul deals with this sort of hostility and evil in Romans chapter 2. And if you want to later on, go read the whole chapter, but I'm just going to read verses 1 to 3 here. Now Paul turns from the one who's just living in absolute licentious living. Often this would have been kind of the Gentile pagan way of living. And now he's turning to talk to what it seems like a Jew or some Jews who are living their religious life, thinking that that's the way that they're going to be righteous before God. But look what he says to these righteous people. He says, starting in verse chapter 2, verse 1, Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. You see what Paul is saying here? Oh, you present yourself as more righteous. I see. And so you pass judgment on those sinners. You say, look at all of those sinners. I'm righteous. I'm not like them. I don't live that way. Except when you're at home in the closet, you sure do. You sure do live that way. You sure do live a hypocritical religious lifestyle. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, oh man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Paul's teaching here that some people reveal their hostility toward trying to position themselves as the righteous ones in comparison to other people. They say, let's just lower the standard down to what men can do, And on the basis of what men can do, I'm a lot better than that guy. So I'm going to be good on the last day. I'll avoid the judgment of God on the last day because I'm not as bad as he is over there. But what Paul is saying is, no, no, no. You might cover it up, but you're just as sinful as the other guy. And the wrath of God is being stored up against the religious person who is relying on his own righteousness as the means by which he will be declared righteous before God. So in either condition, men and women are sinners against the holy God and are therefore objects of his wrath and fury and punishment. God is just, my friends. He will not allow sin to go unpunished. He will reveal his wrath towards sin either now or on the last day and certainly on the last day in its fullest extent. And I just don't even have to tell you, that's not exactly a message that people like to hear these days, is it? You're a sinner against a holy God. I am a sinner against a holy God. There's a famous 17th century preacher named George Whitfield whose preaching set England and America on fire with a love for God. But though thousands flocked to hear Whitfield preached, thousands more plugged their ears in utter disapproval of what he was proclaiming because Whitfield proclaim the truth of the gospel, that man is alienated from God because of our sin and that Jesus is our only hope of salvation. And there was one faithful Christian woman named Lady Huddingdon who was a follower of Whitfield and she invited a friend, the Duchess of Buckingham, to come and hear Whitfield preach. And here was the Duchess's response. She says, it is monstrous to be told that you have a heart as sinful as the common wretches that crawl on the earth. This is highly offensive and insulting. But I, and I cannot but wonder that your ladyship should relish such sentiments so much at variance with high rank and good breeding. Okay, if you think that 21st century people are the only people who don't want to be told that they are sinners in the hands of an angry God, here's the proof that that's just not the case. There's never been a time in all history that a sinner wanted to be told that they are a sinner in the hands of an angry God. No one wants to be told that they're hopelessly lost in their sin because of their natural state. My friends, this is what we call the doctrine of total depravity. Now, let me just be clear here, because a lot of people misunderstand this particular doctrine. 
When we say that a man is totally depraved or totally corrupted, you could say, we do not mean that he is as bad as he can possibly be. God's common grace keeps us from being as bad as we could possibly be. But listen to how one theologian, Robert Latham, explains this doctrine so clearly. He says, the modifier total in total depravity denotes that sin affects every facet of our nature. It does not mean that sinners are as bad as they possibly can be. In practice, total depravity means that there is no human faculty left untouched by sin. The mind as well as the emotions and appetites are biased against God. We need renewal of the whole person. Fallen people cannot rescue themselves from the guilt of, from their guilt and depravity. This is an ethical cannot. They cannot because they will not. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God, Romans 8, 6 to 8. Cannot receive the revelation of God, Matthew 16, 17, 1 Corinthians 2, 14, and John 6. Cannot submit to the law of God, Romans 8, 7. Cannot respond of themselves to the grace of God in Christ and cannot rescue themselves because they are spiritually dead. It is true that fallen people can do much good of a moral, social, and cultural nature. They can show love to family, perform acts of kindness, produce great works of art, and make major contributions to civic welfare. However, apart from regeneration by the Spirit, they cannot do these activities to the glory of God. Nor as a consequence can they share the exultant joy of the psalmist and the wonders of God's works. It requires a radical change, altering the entire bias of the human will in order to respond positively to the gospel, a change that can be, a brought, be brought about only by the Holy Spirit. Friends, that's what we mean by the doctrine of total depravity. We're not saying that people can't do good things. We're not saying that they can't actually contribute to the well-being of the world. By God's common grace, people can do a lot of really good things that do contribute to the well-being of their fellow man. No, what we're saying in the doctrine of depravity is that even though those people do those good things, and we should give thanks when they are doing those good things, we also have the moral clarity to recognize that those good things are not done for the glory of God. And therefore, they are still tainted and corrupted by sin. And so we need to be rescued. And that leads to reality check two, hope arrived. Hope arrived. How are we going to be saved from this sort of hostile mind, from this doing of evil deeds? Look with me at Colossians 1, verse 22. Paul writes, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Okay. What is the solution to our alienation from God? Answer, only Jesus. Only Jesus. Last week, we saw how Paul evidently has the Old Testament temple imagery in mind as he writes this passage as a whole. And the reason is because the temple is the location where the Holy Creator God prepared a place on earth that was holy, where his presence could reside among his people. And so when Israel built the temple in Jerusalem, the, the thought was God is going to come down and dwell in our midst. He will be our God as we are his people. And by having their God dwelling with them, the people of Israel would know the joy and the blessings of God's special relational covenantal presence. The alienation problem would be dealt with. But as you may know, Israel continued to live in their sin. They, they failed to measure up to the covenant standards of God to keep the temple holy. And so his presence was removed from them. And they were alienated again and sent into exile in Babylon. And during that time in exile, God sent prophets to his people to proclaim to them that there was going to be a greater fulfillment of the temple that was to come. Someday, God told his people, a temple is going to be established in Jerusalem where the presence of God is going to dwell and people are going to know his presence to a greater degree than anyone has ever known before. And last week, 
we saw clearly that the anticipated temple was not a building like many people expected. Instead, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell where? In the incarnate Christ. Jesus was the holy presence of God in the world. Jesus was the Son of God who came down and dwelled within a human body. Jesus' body was the true temple. And just as God's people were required to enter into the Old Testament temple, where they would make sacrifices, where the blood of animal was shed in the place of their sins, because we know that the wages of sin is death, so this was the means by which God, at least in an intermediary way, allowed for God's people to dwell with their sin in the Old Testament. Bring an animal, shed its blood, It dies in your place. You go off cleansed, at least symbolically. Now, what we see Paul saying about Jesus is that he comes down as the true temple. But he's not only the true temple, he's also the true priest who goes into the temple, who makes reconciliation in his body of flesh by his death. Okay, that's the imagery that Paul wants us to have in mind here. Jesus is the final temple, and in his body, the final and complete sacrifice was made for sin. And so, just as an ancient Jew would deal with their alienation by going to the temple and making these sacrifices, at least in that symbolic sense, they would walk away blameless. What God is saying here through his word is that God's people no longer go to a physical temple where blood is shed so they can make offerings for their sin. No, God's people now go to the true temple where the final and complete blood sacrifice was made in the person of Jesus. When his body was shed, he finished the work. So the true temple that all of God's people go to now to know full and complete forgiveness, to deal with their sin, to be reconciled to their holy God is into a physical building. It's to the person of Jesus. You go to him. This is the good news of the gospel. If you want to be forgiven of all of your sin, if you want to be made perfectly clean before a holy and righteous God, there's no more sacrifice that you have to make. You just believe that Jesus died for you. He made the sacrifice that was required to wipe away all of your sins. And Jesus brings you out of alienation by bringing you into himself by faith. You don't go into a building, church. You now go into Christ. That's the point that Paul is making here. And when you're united to him, you can therefore go to the Father with no fear of condemnation at all because Jesus has made you presentable. Do you see the incredible wording of this text? I mean, just look back at the front of, of, of this, or at this verse with me. He says, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh. We just talked about that. By his death, we talked about that. Look at this. In order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Okay, we're going to work back to, back to front here so that you understand what is being said here. We have a picture at the end of this verse of a time when we will be presented holy and blameless and above reproach before the holy God. Now, don't miss how amazing this is, because we just saw how hopeless we are in our sinful state before this holy and righteous and just God. We deserve judgment. We deserve condemnation. But here we see that we can somehow be presented holy and blameless before God. Okay, This, again, was common temple language from the Old Testament as well. When the Jews brought the sacrifice into the temple, it had to be an unblemished animal. It had to be a pure animal. They couldn't bring the worst of their animals. They had to bring the best of their animals. And the reason is because God requires perfection. So Jesus came to be the unblemished human which qualified him as the perfect unblemished sacrifice who could die in the place of his people who were the blemished humans. You see, Paul is saying here that we can be presented before God 
in the very same unblemished state that Jesus himself earned by his perfect life. Okay, you got to hear what I just said, church. Wish I had a church to preach to this morning. I might get some more amens if I had a church to preach to this morning. Somebody who believes this stuff, right? Paul is saying that you can be equivalent to an unblemished lamb before the holy and righteous God. But you're a hostile sinner. How can this be? How can we as sinners be presented before this holy God? Here's how. Because Christ came to reconcile us in his body of flesh by his death. Jesus died to pay the penalty for all of your and my sin, church. He paid for all of it. And because he paid for all of it, all who are in him by faith are reconciled before God. Okay, so that means that in Jesus, we are no longer alienated from God. We are brought back into God's covenantal presence. We are made sons and daughters of God. We are fully and completely restored to our creator, God. Now, how does this happen? Not how, we, we covered how. When? When does this happen? Does it happen after we've proven ourselves? Does it happen because Jesus wiped the slate clean because God is a God of second chances and now I can try to be as good as I can be in order to earn my way back up into heaven? Is that what it's saying? That this presentation is something you still have to hope happens in the future that's dependent upon whether or not you are obedient to what God calls you to be obedient to. Is it a, is it a proof thing? You got to prove it, right? You used to play a... a basketball game a little game of horse in the uh in the driveway when I was a kid and we had a rule when you played horse you know what I'm talking about h-o-r-s-e you know what I'm talking about okay so we had a rule that if you got the person out you had to prove it so you had to make the same shot you got them out with again is that is that what Paul's saying here prove it you've been wiped clean now prove it that is not what Paul's saying thank you amen Notice the three glorious words at the beginning of this verse. Verse 22. He has now. That could be probably better translated at this present time. In other words, if you are in Christ by faith, dear Christian, if you were to die at this very moment and find yourself standing before the judgment seat of God, you should have full confidence that you would be declared and seen as holy and blameless and above reproach before Christ because of his temple work on your behalf has cleansed you eternally. You now, you now are already now restored. You are now reconciled. You are now brought back into in the right relationship with your holy creator, God. How? By faith in Christ alone. Church, this was good news to the Colossians, and it is good news to us this very morning. Okay, remember, the Colossians are being told by false teachers that you need more than Jesus' work to complete your religious experience. Focus on Jesus alone isn't enough. He's telling the, the false teachers are telling them, you need visions, you need revelations, you need spiritual experiences, you need additional things that are going to make you know that these things are true. And not only do you need to have all these spiritual experiences, you also need to have a load of good works stacked up that credit your righteousness for yourself so that you can lay them before God and hope that one day he will forgive you of our sins. Paul writes to make this utterly clear. Your salvation is in Christ alone, alone. And God would have it no other way because he has designed this whole thing that his son would get all the glory for your salvation. Your salvation is not on the basis of your good works. It's on the basis of his good works. It's on the basis of his death. It's on the basis of his resurrection, not ours. And so the Christian life is to be holy and completely focused on Jesus. It's never to become about inwardly trusting in the self. It's always to be about outwardly looking to Jesus. So beloved, have you been looking to self as the source of your righteousness this week? 
Perhaps you're trusting in self, and it's showing in an inflated ego or overconfidence. Maybe you're the one who is judgmental toward other people because you're looking to self, and you think yourself looks pretty darn good. You consider yourself better than others? That's just one way that we reveal that we're trusting in our own righteousness rather than that of Jesus alone. Maybe you're sitting there this morning and you're having that very attitude toward the preached word. I'm better than the stuff that this church is preaching. I'm a lot better than this. I don't need all that Jesus righteousness stuff because I've got a righteousness of my own. Can you honestly and openly confess your weaknesses and your struggles to other people? Do you live in vulnerability about your struggles? Are you really, truly, genuinely open and honest about the sin struggles that you have in your life? If you're not, then that's a sign that you're trusting in your own righteousness rather than Jesus alone. Because if you're trusting in Jesus' righteousness, you've got nothing to hide. Have you been comparing yourself to other people this week? And, And as you compare yourself to other people, you're finding that doing so is leading your heart to despair in your own current circumstances. That way of trusting in your own righteousness will lead you to despair. But it is a trusting in your own righteousness. Because what you're thinking is, if I had only made better or different decisions in my life, if I had just done things a little bit different, then I could have what that person has instead of what I have right now. And so you're trusting in yourself in the sense that you made the bad decisions in the past and you're holding on to those as a way of comparing yourself to other people. You're trusting in yourself even still in that sense. Or or maybe this week you've feared failure. This is another way to show that you're trusting in your own righteous merit. Do you fear failure? Failure in parenting? Failure in marriage? For, For some of you, you're fearing failure and perhaps adjusting to a new place because you've just now moved here to Utah County and life seems crazy and you were scared to death of how things are going to end up. Or maybe you're fearing failure in your own job. Thinking, how am I going to deal with my job situation right now? This is on me. I, I've got to hold all this up. I've got to depend on myself. I've got to pull myself up by the bootstraps and just be better. I can't trust God for this. I've got to figure it out on my own. No, 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 church. You have a God who provides for all of your needs, your perfect righteousness, and everything else. So listen, church, if you're in Christ, The truth is that you are now a beloved son of God, okay? Maybe you fear that God's wrath is towards you. God's punishing me for something that I did because he's angry. No, no, no. If you're a child of God, his wrath isn't towards you anymore. That's not his punishment that you're experiencing. It's his fatherly discipline. It's his loving hand that is guiding every difficult circumstance, every suffering in a way that allows for your good. He's arranged the bad things to be happening to you. It's not his wrath. It's his fatherly hand ensuring that you are growing in Christ's likeness. You are growing in dependence. You're growing in trust in him. See, so in every trial now, you as a believer can know that this isn't condemnation. This is just his providential hand toward me, and I trust it. See what all this means? Because we're in Christ, there's no more fear. There's no more fear of condemnation. And so we can live truly as people with hope. We can live with hope. And that's reality check three, hope lived. What does it look like to live with this kind of hope? Well, look at Colossians 1.23. Paul says, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Okay, here's essentially the point that Paul is making here. Those who are united to Christ, who sacrificially died for our sins, know that we will be presented holy and blameless before God by faith. But because of that knowledge and of what we trust in now, we've been made new and we now live sacrificial lives that are devoted to the God who saved us. 
And if a person does not live sacrificially with an ever-increasing personal holiness and Christ-likeness over the course of life, an ever-deepening dependence upon him for everything that we need, if a person does not increase in that over the lifetime, here's what Paul's saying. He should have no confidence that he was ever truly united to Christ at all. This is what we call a warning passage in the Scripture. And God gives us verses like this so that his true people will hear and heed his word. And it's by passages like this through his word that God enables his people to persevere and continue in the faith. Now notice first what we are to continue in. Paul says we need to continue in the faith. That faith refers to a continuing trust Independence upon the supreme and sufficient Christ. So Paul's not saying, stack up your works and trust in those. That's not what a Christian does. A Christian grows in faith. And of course, works will come as an outworking of the faith. But what we're ultimately growing in, the root of our lives, is our faith in Christ, our trust in Him. Then we see in the next few phrases that this is the case because Paul says that we must remain stable and steadfast. What? Not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. Here's what Paul is saying. A person is shifting from the gospel and thus not continuing in the faith when he or she stops looking to Christ alone as the only hope of salvation and begins to look at any other source in this world for hope. Any other source in this world, whether that be self or anything else in all creation, if you're starting to place your hope in something outside of Christ to save you from the wrath of God on the last day, or if you're beginning to just renounce that altogether, you are not clinging to the hope of the gospel that you heard. To continue in faith is to continue hoping in the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is a gospel not of, we must, not of what we must do, but of what Christ has done for us. See, it's so essential to understand these different components. Paul's not saying the hope of the gospel is the works you're doing. No, the hope of the gospel is the work Christ did. And so you need to continue in that faith. Continue looking to him. Continue keeping your eyes fixed on Jesus. Continue turning away from all of the self-righteousness that we'll seek to claim in our own lives in all those various ways that I just mentioned and probably in many ways that we are doing without even realizing it. Turn to Jesus. Don't trust in anything else. That's what it means to live in hope. It means when you're tempted to seek satisfaction in the world in anything outside of Christ, you run away from that temptation and you fix your eyes on Jesus. The language that Paul uses here, he says stable and steadfast. That's actually architectural language back in the ancient world, which I think connects to Paul's temple way of thinking because he makes these connections a lot more clear in Ephesians, which is a very similar letter to what we have in Colossians. But remember, Christ is the true temple, and all who are in Christ are now being built into a holy temple here on earth. So we see in Ephesians that the church is the dwelling place of God on earth now by the Spirit. Now this verse in Colossians could also be translated this way. With your foundation established and your structure immovable. Church, what is the foundation and the immovable structure on which the church is built? Is it you? Is it your righteousness? Is it your performance? No. On Christ, the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. And I just want to make a quick application because perhaps there are some people in the room this morning who have overcomplicated the faith. And here's what I mean by this. Maybe you've heard the preaching of the doctrine of regeneration, that you must be born again, which is a true doctrine that we preach. But you've actually turned that doctrine into the very thing that Paul is teaching against here in Colossians. 
which is that you're supposed to have some crazy spiritual experience that confirms that you're in the faith. That you're supposed to have something radical that happens. Some particular moment that you can look back on and say, that's how I know I was changed. Maybe there's some people in here and and you have not fully devoted yourself to Jesus because you think, I don't want to be a false convert. I don't want to end up following Jesus and then turning the other way. Well, I hope that you see that what Paul is saying here is it's a lot more simple than that because you're not supposed to trust in your experience anyways. You're supposed to just look to Jesus. You're supposed to look to him, fix your eyes on him, devote yourself, yourself to him, and continue in that faith for the rest of your life. The doctrine of the perseverance of the saints is a doctrine that all those who are saved will persevere in the end. And so if you're overcomplicating things and making it seem like Christianity is supposed to be some moment where I have this major out-of-body experience where everything becomes open and wide open and obvious to me, maybe it's a lot more simple than that for you, and you just need to follow Jesus. You just need to take the steps of faith and continue in it for the rest of your life. And trust God. That's what faith is. It's a total dependence upon Him. Not on some spiritual moment you had. It's on Jesus. So turn your eyes there. Maybe that word is for you this morning. And you just need to have that childlike faith and simply follow Jesus. And just do it for the rest of your life. And grow in the faith. Grow in the grace of the Lord. Grow in the knowledge of Him. Be a part of the church. Read the word. Love Him. Follow Him. I loved hearing one of the testimonies of a brother in our church, even a brother and sisters, is like, I don't even know when I was saved. My parents preached the gospel to me from the time I was a child, and I just followed Jesus. Praise God. That's what we want to see. And there's nothing that makes a radical conversion like Paul's more outstanding than a child who grew up in the faith. God still gets the glory for all of it. So we need to build our lives on the gospel. The the gospel that that Paul has traveled all over the world to proclaim, as he alludes to here. And, And we know the truth of the gospel because the Apostle Paul and others ministered it to us. So brothers, don't shift from that hope that you've seen and heard declared. Don't shift from the hope that you have received in Christ. If you're being tempted to find your hope in living for anything other than Jesus, turn and run back to Jesus right now as quickly as you can. Don't build your life on sand. Build it on the rock. Build it on a sure foundation. I'll just take you back to that quote that I began with from the Harvard Business Review at the beginning. I mentioned the quote that said, hope is the belief that the future will be better than the present, coupled with the belief that you have the power to make it so. I hope that you see the foolishness of that statement now. The truth, friends, is that you have little to no power to control whether or not your future in this world will be present or will be better in the future than it is in the present. Now, of course, there could be general principles that lead to flourishing, like you could make wise investments when you're younger and be financially better off, or a Great Depression could hit, you could lose everything. You have no control to ultimately, definitively determine what's going to happen to you in this life. You have little powers over things at all. But what you can do is run into the hands of the God who has all power. You can run into the hands of the God who has told you what future hope looks like. And that's a hope that is beyond this world. A hope to be reconciled to a holy God where one day we're going to be part of a new, final, complete, new creation where everything in the world is going to be given to us, where we're going to rule over this world as God's creation to his glory with Christ as our king and sin will be no more. You, you could just hope in that, and you should, because there's nothing better that you could hope in. What do you do to receive that hope? You don't believe in yourself. You believe in God. 
you believe in the Christ of all power. The Christ has been proclaimed by Paul in Colossians, who came into the earth to reconcile us to God so that our future hope is secure. And it's secure not because of a single thing that we've done, but because Jesus has come and done it all for us. There, there can't be better news in that church. And I just pray that we would all cling to that news this morning with our whole heart, soul, mind, and strength afresh. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the reconciling work that has occurred in Jesus. Lord, we know that the granting of faith is a miracle, but God, I do pray that nobody in this room would overcomplicate that. I pray that the people would just simply trust in Jesus, to choose to lay aside the things of the world that offer such a false, empty hope, and to cling to eternal life, which is Christ himself. Father, I pray that as we take this meal, it would just be a, a fresh expression for your people that you are our